You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. He was born, George Herbert was born into an affluent family that also was a powerful family. Several earls were part of it, and uh, he had all the, the benefits of being in sort of the aristocratic realm of English society. He uh, was educated at Westminster in London and then uh, eventually at Trinity College in Cambridge. And he was sort of a boy wonder there, a uh, great scholar in Latin and Greek, and uh, was a teacher of rhetoric there and was what was called a public orator. Uh, what, that doesn't mean that he spoke in public, but he was sort of a, a spokesman for Trinity College there in Cambridge. And uh, he served in Parliament, mainly at the behest of King uh, James, uh, but he never really wanted to do that. What he really wanted to do was to be a priest, and that's, that's what he did. He was married, and his first assignment was a little town called Bemberton, right outside Salisbury, and he was a priest there for three years, and he died of tuberculosis at the age of 39. And we uh, still study his poetry. Uh, he was a very significant artist in that regard and left his impact even though it was a short life uh, based upon his capacity I think to be able to express the Christian life all the poems that at least we know of he also wrote a lot of little proverbs and apothems but the poetry that we know is brought together in the book called The Temple and it's about he writes poems relative to moving to spaces inside a temple like the porch and the altar and so on and it's how one would experience God in such a way, like at the beginning part, walking in on the porch, or at the presence of holiness, like at the altar. And in that sort of great story that he weaves together, and he's quite creative. His portrait is also sometimes written as though it were the wings of a bird. I mean, it was laid out on a piece of paper as though it were the wings of a bird. He could have long lines and short lines and so on. But in that, he has two poems on Christmas. He is called a metaphysician poet, metaphysic poet. And what that meant, there's a technical name, uh, re, I mean, meaning for that. What that meant is that oftentimes a poet would use tangible things to talk about sort of eternal reasons or causes or conditions. And that often, that, and Herbert does this as well, John Donne in some ways we looked at last week is considered one of these metaphysical poets as well, that the concrete world was an image of the eternal world, and their portrait was able to sort of articulate the eternity embedded in concrete things. And he does this in a couple of ways here with uh, uh, aspects of his Christmas experience. What I'm going to do is to read this one, I'll go, then back up a little bit and talk about it, and then I'll flip over to the next slide and look at what's called Christmas 2. All right. Again, a poem can be studied very analytically, but there's a significance in hearing it as a whole. And so I'm going to try to read it with some justice. After all pleasures, as I rid one day, my horse and I, both tired body and mind, with full cry of affections quite astray, I took up the next inn I could find. There when I came, whom found I but my dear, my dearest Lord, expecting till the grief of pleasures brought me to him, ready there to be all passengers, most sweet relief? O thou, whose glorious yet contracted light 
wrapped in night's mantle, stole into a manger, since my dark soul and brutish is thy right. To man of all beast, be thou, uh, be not thou a stranger. Furnish and deck my soul, that thou mayest have a better lodging than a rack or a grave. Uh, this poem in particular is, I think, apropos for us who get really, really busy during Christmas time with all kinds of activities. It's hard to ever just sort of sit still and contemplate on the significance of this. And he says, after all pleasures, after I've done everything I had to do, as I read one day, I'm worn out. I'm just worn out. And I find my way into an inn. Obviously, it's symbolic. What is that inn? You can think of it literally as an inn or as a church. He walks into a church. Uh, Herbert himself was a very accomplished ludist. Uh, and he often, he, I, I think it's only like three miles away from the great cathedral of Salisbury, a magnificent building, one of the great buildings in all of uh, Great Britain. Uh, and he would play the lute there uh, at Salisbury twice a week he would go. And uh, you could think of this coming into the church, but he, you can even expand it even more so. Remember, he's a metaphysical poet. And you definitely see that with this, with this idea I'm not really good at this stuff. Um, uh, yet contracted light wrapped in night's mantle. Light being contracted, squeezed. That's right. pretty big concept, how you could grab a light and just condense it, and then all of a sudden the light of the world appears in Jesus Christ. Very significant imagery. But, he come, but we come into the Lord as well. So it's like a literal inn, a symbolic church, but also the reality of the Lord. In our weariness, we walk into the presence of God here on Christmas. And there we find Christ here, my dearest Lord, expecting till the grief of pleasures brought me to Him. I've run out of what I can do. I've exhausted the capacities I have to fulfill my life. My pleasures are not granting me the happiness that I need. And so where do we go? You could go into despair or you could go into this inn, as he says. And that's the presence of Christ giving us this sweet relief. I've already mentioned this, how he sort of speculates here how this could happen. How could an infant be God? That's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I probably said this last time. Uh, Martin Luther once said that when the shepherds peered over the manger and saw the infant, they saw the creator of the world. What a claim. How can that be? How can a child be God? How can the creator of the world become born of a woman. And that's at the very heart of our faith. And so it really expands our mind to think that way. And a lot of great thinkers have tried to come up with explanations of that. Thomas Aquinas being a good representative of this. Augustine in his own way. Some modern thinkers try to think of how can the creator be a creature at the same time. Well, he does it with this poetic imagery of the contracting of light. He sort of captures the miracle of the Incarnation, I think, with these kind of speculations here. Furnish and deck my soul that thou mayest a better lodging than a rack or a grave. Reference here to his death. And Christ would be put into a grave. Let my heart be more amenable, compatible, welcoming, hospitable to you, hospitable to you than the grave. Okay, the next one here. Uh, I'm about to run out of time here. Um, I'm going to skip this point because I want to concentrate on the building that I have sick there. But 
I would recommend and urge you to read the poetry of, of uh, George Herbert. I think he has tremendous insight into the Christian life. And here he was, per, obviously a genius as a poet, but he brings it in service here to his Christian faith, especially his calling as a priest. But I want to talk about this building, the Hagia Sophia. Anyone been there? I thought you and I had had that conversation, this conversation. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Hagia Sophia, called Holy Wisdom. Uh, and the reason why I'm using this uh, for a Christmas lesson is uh, the Haggai Sophia refers to the Word. The Holy Wisdom is the eternal Word. And this building was built to honor how the eternal Word became incarnate. So it's about Christmas, the incarnation of the Holy Word, the Holy Wisdom. And in fact, its, it's day set aside is December the 25th. It is the day that it honors this particular great building, the Hagia Sophia. It was, it was begun, I'm going to skip over a lot of the history here, in the 6th century by Constantinus II, as the, hopefully, it's supposedly, to be the greatest Christian building in the world at that time. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, it was the largest building in the world, and also remained the largest Christian building in the world for a long, long time. Uh, the, it had... It, it, fell down a number of times because of earthquakes, 6th century, 14th century, and so on. And so it had been rebuilt a number of times. The most prominent aspect of that is, as you see there, the dome. It's 180 over 180 feet high. When you go in, you're overwhelmed by the vastness of it. You're in a different world. The, the space of it is over 250 feet long. You're just sort of brought up into the vastness of this experience. That's not a very good picture. Sorry? Yeah, it's in Istanbul. I'm glad you mentioned that. It was originally in the old city of Constantinople. And if you know much about the history of that part of the world, that was the center of Christendom for a long time because the Holy Roman Empire moved east out of Rome. And it was stationed there in Constantinople. And this was the, the seat for the patriarch of the Byzantine church. And so uh, you know, in, in a way, this was the, the hub of the wheel for Christendom for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, it uh, was almost uh, uh, despoiled uh, by the Fourth Crusade, if you know much about that, which is frankly one of the most unfortunate episodes in the history of Christian West. The Fourth Crusaders, they were on their way to the Holy Lands, but they stopped in Constantinople and basically ransacked it. And they changed this away from being an Orthodox church because if you know, the Orthodox church, the Eastern church, broke away from the Western church in 1053 or 1051, each excommunicating one another. And when the Fourth Crusaders, they were Catholic Crusaders, came, they conquered Constantinople and did not go to the Holy Lands. And they just pilfered it and, and left it basically penniless and turned that into... A Roman Catholic cathedral, which it was for a number of years. And then finally, when they, they, the Crusaders left, they reconsecrated it as an Orthodox cathedral. But the city of Constantinople never recovered from this. This was in the 1200s. So in, 15, in 1453, uh, Mehmed the Conqueror, the Muslim Ottoman ruler, came and took Constantinople and turned this into a mosque. You can see there in the painting the, the sort of circular um, disc there around. Those are the names of Allah, Muhammad, 
the first four caliphates, uh, two grandsons of Muhammad, uh, Meheb went in and destroyed the altar and took all the religious paintings out of it. And one of the things that he did was to cover that famous mosaic up with plaster. And so people for hundreds of years from you know, the mid-1400s all the way up to 1931 went into the Haggai Sophia not knowing that it was really a Christian worship place at all because they either tore down the statues, uh, erased all the paintings, or plastered over the mosaics. In uh, 1931, Ataturk, who was a secular ruler of Turkey, decided to change this away from a mosque into a museum. And then opened it up again, I think, in 1933. And part of what he did was to clear away a lot of these paintings here. And this, this painting here is a symbol, obviously, of the birth of Christ, which is what that great building signifies, the incarnation of the Word. Well, the Haggai Sophia, give me one minute and then we'll go, is one of the great experiences I think I've ever had. Uh, I, I've been blessed to go to a number of buildings, but this one is unique. Uh, I, I mentioned to you that, you know, like Chartres Cathedral in Paris, I mean, just south of Paris, Canterbury Cathedral, Ely Cathedral, these magnificent buildings I've been in, Notre Dame and so on, uh, are, are wonderful, and they're Gothic. They're great Gothic buildings. This is not Gothic. The Haggai Sophia is unique uh, with its great dome structure like this. And it was one of the great marvels of architectural accomplishment to do so. They had to get the numbers just right for this to work. And you go in and you think, how is this building standing? It has that kind of miraculous feel to it, that you're in a, in a place in which there ought not be a place like this. How can they keep that, that magnificent dome 180, degree, 180 feet up in the air? And they were able to, to do it. And they uh, brought you know, the best architects, the best builders and sculptors, masonry and so on, uh, that were in the Eastern world at that time to accomplish this great building. And one last concluding point about it. Back to this painting here. Uh, architecture has its own unique artistic experience with it. You, know, you see a sculpture and you're speculating on it from the outside. Architecture, though, is like a sculpture. It's a building. It's, it's an edifice. You can see it, but you can go inside it. I had mentioned this to you, uh, I think I did, about Chartres Cathedral. Didn't I talk about Chartres? About the three rows of stained glass windows and how the light moves across those windows. And it's like you're caught up into a cloud, a heavenly experience. That's one of the great things that Gothic Cathedral was able to do. Well, this has its own unique kind of experience that it is able, in a way, to capture how the birth of Christ here sort of moves aside space. I like that kind of image. Creates a vastness in a child. It is able to expand time and space. Eternity, infinity, come into a baby. Come into a person. A man on the cross, raised from the dead. And it gives us this ability of, we're in a unique place right here. And architecture, and religious architecture, I think, is, is very, very compatible with this idea of the metaphysical reality that eternity and the infinite have become temporal and finite. And I remember walking in here the first time, it was like I was in a unique world. I was expanded, this vastness here, this kind of mysticism that's found in such buildings like this, is captured in an individual experience.
uh, I had similar experiences I had there when first time I went to Notre Dame, you know, Canterbury Cathedral, uh, you know, Chartres Cathedral. I didn't want to leave. I really didn't. I, it had an allure to me. It had an attractiveness to me. Like there at the Eisenheim altarpiece, you sit on a bench and you think about it. You look at it. You go into a great building like this, and I think the sanctuary here has the same kind of feel to it. It provides a unique experience of how eternity and infinity can be captured in time infinitude, which is what the Christmas story is all about. Well, what I wanted to do in this very, very brief series here is to appreciate the great works by these great artists here to capture uh, the story of Christmas, that the Word was made flesh. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity, Gil. And uh, any concluding comments you want to make or any experience of an artwork, a poem, a building that you want to talk about? All right, good. Let me pray. O oh Lord, I pray that our souls will magnify Thee in light of the great testimony and witness of these saints that have been raised up by Thy power to be witnesses of Thee. And I pray that these things that we experience in the great work of art here will enable us to enter into Thy end, as Herbert said, to experience Thee even more so, our dear and sweet Christ. This I pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.